can find there. If you need a Bible, there's some on the back table which are marked to the place where we're at. So, we started last week thinking about the church, the most beautiful place on earth I described it as, and we're going to continue to see in that regard why I think it is, in fact, the most beautiful place on earth. We started last week by reminding ourselves of the need to pray for our church. You can, if you weren't here or you want to catch up, that is uh, available online. You can get it through a podcast uh, app or iTunes or even from the website. So if you want to catch up or listen to that, uh, you can do that. And so we talked about that. We talked about the need to pray for our church, to pray passionately for our church and to pray deeply for our church. And so we spent some time considering that. We can't look forward to what we will be. because We're, we're thinking about where we're going to go, what, what we're going to be as a church as we move forward. But we can't look forward to what we will be as a church unless we understand who we are. What is this idea of a church? We need to understand what sets us apart from all other gatherings, from all other uh, assemblies or societies and associations and groups. What is it that makes the church different from any other group of people? And that's what we want to begin to understand and think through this morning. What is it that we are when we talk about being a church? And so we've set out a plan to move through four basic ideas uh, over these next few weeks. And we began by talking about the beautiful prayer for our church. This morning we're going to talk about the beautiful plan for the church. We'll actually be dividing that up into two, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But here we're going to be talking about what was Jesus' intention for the church? What was it that he was establishing? What did he design it to be? What is it supposed to look like? And so this week and next week we'll be talking about that. And then we'll look at the beautiful partnership in the church, and that is how does a church work or function and then the beautiful purpose of a church. So we're working from the grand scheme down to the small. That is, what is God's design, his purpose, his plan? What is he making here? And then we'll work our way down to what does that look like in a church as we work that grand purpose out. The sad truth, though, is for far too long, we Christians have defined church pragmatically. We have had theological definitions and understandings of church, but those theological understandings have become flexible over the years to allow us to follow what works, at least what seems to work in our eyes. The talk about church over the last couple of decades has been dominated by its purpose. It is what, what does a church do? And that has been the, the focus of most of, of the talk about a church over the last few years, is essentially focusing on what does a church do. Now, by focusing so much on what does a church do, what we have lost focus of is what is a church? What is it? What is it is a far more fundamental question than what does it do? Because if we know what it is, then what it does naturally flows out. This is a question, this is a topic we need to spend more time on today. So briefly today, we want to begin considering that. We want to begin considering what was Jesus' design, his intent, and his plan for the church. 
And so this morning and in the, the next uh, week or next week, we're going to be looking at that, the beautiful plan for the church, and we're going to be covering four thoughts uh, to cover that. This morning we'll look at the first two thoughts, and that is that Christ is our confession and Christ is our builder. And then we'll be following that up next week with the following two, that Christ is our authority and Christ is our bond. To look at what he means, what his intent was and his design is for a church. So this sets the foundation for our structure, for our function. If we know what we are, what we are meant to be, then we will know how to do it, how to fulfill what God meant us to be. So to do that, we need to go to the beginning. We need to go to the start where Jesus started in this regard. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go right to the beginning. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin reading in verse 13. And we'll read through verse 20 uh, this morning. And it says here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning to begin to understand what it is you intend for this church to be, may it encourage us, fill us with joy and confidence as we see your grand purpose and your great power that is at work in your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the next two weeks, we're going to go through this whole passage, which we just read. We won't make it all the way through uh, this morning, but we will finish through this passage and subsequent passages here in the next two weeks. But we want to begin here by looking at this idea of the most beautiful place on earth being God's beautiful plan for the church. And so to begin with, let's think on that first thought I said to you before, that Christ is our confession. That Christ is our confession. In our text, which we have begun here, we began in verse 13, where we find this great question, or these two great questions, and the confession of Peter. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? As we come to this passage of Scripture in Matthew, we come here to a very important part of Matthew's Gospel. We've noted as we've gone through every gospel and everything that, that, that we've done, and even as we've been going through Luke's previously, that each of the, the uh, writers of the gospels had an intent. And so they put together, either chronologically or in, in order, uh, the, the pattern of Jesus' life and the things of Jesus' life, focusing particularly on things that they wanted us to understand 
about who Jesus is and what he did. And in Matthew's narrative of Jesus, as he puts all this together to show us something about Jesus, this passage of scripture comes to us as the pinnacle. This is one of the key passages of Matthew's gospel where he has been leading us to because the kingdom, the idea of the kingdom and who Jesus is plays an absolutely integral part in what Matthew was trying to teach. So here we come to what Jesus is beginning to teach and and say about these things. We have here a moment where Jesus is preparing his disciples and has been preparing his disciples. See, for about, at this point, now about two and a half years, Jesus has been teaching and he has been sharing with the people and instructing the people about who he is, what he intends to do, and why he is there. And he has been doing this over and over again. So for over two years, probably about two and a half years now, they have been hearing Jesus teaching that he is the Son of God, that he is God who has come to save from the, the sins of mankind and to open and provide the kingdom which God has promised. And so he has been slowly expanding that and teaching about what that means and who he is. Now from this point... Uh, in Matthew's gospel throughout, what we find is, and in his ministry generally, from this point, his focus in ministry shifts and he spends less time in public ministry and much more time privately ministering to his disciples. This is that shift because we're now only about six months uh, about from the time when Jesus will be crucified. So now we're at that point where we're getting so close to where Jesus is going to be going, he needs to shift his focus from generally teaching to securing his disciples so that they know what is going to happen when Jesus leaves. What does it mean when he's gone? How is this going to continue? What are they supposed to believe? What are they supposed to do? And so these next six months are going to be much more intensely focused on Jesus securing and preparing his disciples to be what they need to be when he's gone. It's time now for a test. And that's what this conversation is. This conversation is a test. And so he begins by asking an important question. He asks an important question here and he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, as we read through it, we think about the passage and we think about what's been going on. It might seem like a pointless question. Why does it matter? Why does it matter what other people think of Jesus? Why does it matter what they all think? It doesn't seem to really matter. It seems kind of a pointless question. But then as we put it all together and we look in the context of the second question, it will make sense. There is a reason Jesus asked these two questions in this order to his disciples at this moment. So he asked them a question, who do do people think I am? Who do the people around you, what are you hearing about who I am? Even today, there are many answers to that question. And although we might think of that and think, well, it's kind of a pointless question, it doesn't really matter, what they need to believe is who he really is, but it is an important question for us to consider. Who do people around us think Jesus is? There's a lot of people that think he was a a good guy, good man that lived a, a good life, perhaps even an excellent example of what it is to live a right life. There are many who would think that he is a prophet, 
Islam would fit into that. Islam believes that Jesus is a good prophet, a good prophet of God. Not God, but a good prophet of God. There are, of course, not everybody thinks of Jesus in a good light, that he might be a good example. There are many that believe that he was a fake, that he was a liar. And there are still some, contrary to to evidence, that believe that the entire idea of Jesus is a myth, that he never really lived, he never really existed. And there are people around that believe that. There are Hindus who believe that, that Jesus is really an example of recognizing your own God consciousness. And that he is an example of realizing that in all of us is God and we just need to find it. There is the, the Christadelphians who don't believe that Jesus existed until he was born. And that he wasn't sinless, but that he was a sinner. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by the Father. God the Father created him. So he is not God, but a creation of God. The Mormons or the Church of Latter-day Saints believes that Jesus is a God. Not the God, but both God the Father and God the Son have, uh, are beings of physical bodies. And Jesus is the actual physical son of the Father. So he is simply just another God. The Jews, of course, will reject Christ as God. So there are many, many, and just like in our text as we read here, some of the answers are, you know, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There is a wide range of ideas about who Jesus is. Even though he had been teaching and telling the people who he was and what he had come to do, there was still a great deal of, uh, of difference in the way people thought about Jesus. And just like then, so it is today. There are many, many different ways that people think about who Jesus is. And that's part of the question Jesus asks, because that's part of the thing we need to consider as Jesus is moving us to his point. So he asks this important question. It's a question we all really need to consider and ponder more than we do. But then we move into the second question where we find a profession of belief in Christ. Now the first question Jesus asks, which is, who do people say that I am? That's an important question. It is an important question to understand and to think about. But the second question that Jesus asks in verse 15 who do you say that I am? Now that's more than an important question. That's a fundamental question. That is a very deeply important question. What we believe about Jesus has very important and very personal implications. It is a question that every person needs to consider and needs to consider with honesty. The question then that I pose to each and every one of us this morning firstly is this what do you believe about who Jesus is now I don't want you to just listen to that question because it's easy for us to sit in something like this and even as believers sit and hear that and say oh yep heard that question it's not a question for us to just hear today it's a question for us to honestly answer who do I believe Jesus is that is the important foundation on which we're going to move forward is the answer to that question. Now Peter, 
gives us his answer to that question, which he says on behalf of the others. And he confesses Christ as Savior. says in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a powerful answer. It's a magnificent answer to the question. And as we see as usual, Peter is naturally Peter. Jesus asked the question, and he's not sitting back waiting for... Anybody else have an answer? Anybody else want to do it? Come on, I just want to let you have it. Peter jumps in. I've got the answer, Jesus. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he jumps right in and he gives the answer. Now, that's an important thing that we see here. And there's a reason Matthew brings that to our attention, that he's the one who jumps right in and gives us this. Because Peter is the leader. He always has been. He's the leader of the group, and from this point, okay, and we will see this as we move through this passage, from this point, he will actually become the leader of this group. Jesus will place on him the authority to be the leader of this group. He will be their spokesman. And here, his answer is our focus. What is his answer to this question? Because his answer is one we must consider. His answer implies a number of very, very important things. Things which are fundamental to what we are as Christians and what we must understand are fundamental to what we are as a church. The implications are far, far reaching. The first thing that Jesus or that, that uh, uh, Peter mentions to us in his answer here is that you are the Christ. That is that he confesses Christ is Savior. His confession begins with that. Christ is Savior. You are the Christ. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is a title. It's a title which means anointed one, chosen one, deliverer or Savior. It is a title which expresses to us that Jesus is the one chosen, anointed, appointed by God to be the deliverer of mankind from salvation. So when Peter says you are the Christ, he has in his mind the whole picture of the Messiah, but he has in his mind the great deliverer. The one who will save from sin, the one who will bring about all of God's promises. In fact, Peter will, will say much of that in his in his letter, in his epistle, and in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. Peter will write for us years later, uh, sorry, is that the, 1 Peter 1 verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He, indeed, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In fact, it's this very idea that Jesus will start talking about with them very shortly. If you drop down just a few verses in our text in Matthew 16 to verse 21, says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So it's that idea, it's that idea that comes from the first part of Peter's confession that he is the Christ that Jesus is now going to be intensely speaking to them about in the days ahead. We must believe that Jesus is the one chosen by God to bring salvation from sin to all of those who will believe. That is, like Jesus was shown in verse 21 there, that he must suffer by the hands of wicked men. That he must be killed to bear the punishment for sin. And that he will rise again to defeat sin and death. The apostles tell us in, in Acts that he is the only way. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. By the end of our text, which we've been reading by verse 20, it's clear and indicating here that what Peter confesses of Christ is clearly the belief of the apostles. He's speaking on behalf of them. They, they believe what he believes. But he hasn't only confessed Jesus as Savior. He's confessed more than that. He's gone further than that. Believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not only must we confess Christ as Savior, but we must confess Christ as Lord. We must understand that He is Lord. You see, what makes the first part of the confession possible is the second part of the confession. This, what makes Him able to be Savior is the fact that He is Lord. That He is the Son of the living God means that He can be the Christ. That Jesus is the living God. It is not that he is a God, nor is he part of God, as some boundary-ish Christian uh, type organizations will have us believe. It is not that he was just a godly person, nor is it that this man, Jesus, became God at his baptism or at his birth or even at his death. What Peter confesses here is the truth that he is truly holy God, perfect in every way. This is the, uh, the foundational confession, confession that Peter brings to us. Jesus is absolute perfection, and his absolute perfection as God allowed him to die in our place as a perfect man. So to confess as Christ and God. We're going to confess those two things, that he is the Christ, the Savior, and confess that he is the Son of the living God. Both of those things imply a very, very important truth. He is Lord. He is Lord. That is, he is master, he is ruler, he is king. It implies that very clearly and very truly, he is the creator. And so if he is Lord, then we must submit to him. We have no option. If we are going to confess and believe in the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, we have no other option than to submit ourselves to him as Lord. We are left with no other option. 
We cannot say that he is Savior and that he is God and yet still think that we have the option not to submit to him as Lord. That option does not exist. If he is Lord, then we must submit to him. We must. This is the foundational truth of the church. That Jesus Christ is Savior, Christ, the Son of the living God. That he is Lord. This is the foundational truth of this church. Now we will look a little bit more in detail next week at why Jesus asked these two questions the way he does. But the first thing to understand about why Jesus asked these two questions, the first, why do you, who do people think I am, and then who do you think I am, is this, because this confession is a, gives us a defining characteristic. It draws a line which shows us that there are two people. There are people who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and there are people that do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's an important distinction. An important distinction that needs to be understood as Jesus pushes us further into what the church is. That there are those who believe and those who don't. This is a defining difference. A very important characteristic. You see, some people believe that Jesus is the Savior and Lord and some people don't. Some people talk like they love Jesus, but don't confess him as Savior and Lord. Lots of people assume to speak for Jesus. Some confess truly, and some don't. This confession is the defining difference between believer and unbeliever. So the question then, which is raised by these two questions, is how do we know who is and who isn't a believer? How do we define in this world who truly confesses Christ is indeed the Savior and is God, as opposed to those who don't? That's where Jesus is heading for us. That is exactly the question Jesus is about to answer. You see, when we get to this question, we come here uh, as as we find here and we find Jesus asks these questions, Peter gives his great and glorious confession of absolute truth in what Jesus did. The, the, the conversation doesn't end. Jesus doesn't say, great, now that we've got that settled and we know what you believe as opposed to what they believe, let's move on. This is just the beginning. That is the thought starter he put in their mind so that he could move forward into his next level. What is he about to do? This is the foundational platform to begin the conversation. This question, this confession is not the end of the conversation, but just the beginning. Where do we go from there is the question. So Jesus begins to answer that for us as we move from Christ is our confession to Christ is our builder. So he moves from this and he builds on what uh, Peter has said here in his great confession. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Also, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The things that we find here, the main theme that he moves us into is that Christ will build his church. And so he tells us very clearly that he is indeed building a church. Jesus initially addresses Peter. Jesus answered and said to him, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed to you this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he initially addresses Peter. But by the end of our text, the implication is that Peter represents his uh, the other apostles. And then when we move over to where we'll see a little bit more next week in Matthew 18, it becomes very clear that the confession made was on behalf of the apostles as a whole and, in fact, extends beyond that to the church. So Peter here speaks for more than just himself. The details of that we'll see more as we look next week as we get into the key of the passage later on. You'll get that joke when you read it later on. This then is an important thing. You see, Peter here is given a great responsibility to lead the leaders. An important responsibility is here laid on his shoulders to lead the leaders. Now, this has nothing to do with the Pope. This doesn't have anything to do with a succession of people who is passed directly from Peter to the next to the next to, to be the head over all the, the church. This is not to do with the Pope. Now, in the, the Greek that we have here, there does seem to be a play on words which would suggest that the name Peter is, means stone and rock means great mountain. That's the Greek, and we can play with that, but the underlying Aramaic there, which this is drawn from, would suggest that the play on words isn't as big as we thought, but that he is, in fact, speaking directly to Peter. Peter, you are the rock. And I will build my church on that rock. Now, that doesn't mean that it still has anything to do with, with uh, the popes or anything like that if we take it like that. Because cle Peter clearly takes on the leadership role of the resurrection. Yes, think about what happens after Christ resurrects and leaves. Peter is the one we see at the front all the time. He is the one who is preaching on the day of Pentecost that we read his sermon. He is the one that is present there when the Spirit comes to the Gentiles. He is at the front all the time. He is the, the one on which the, the largest responsibility seems to rest. And the Bible seems very clear about that, that as Jesus went to heaven, the responsibility to lead the leaders that lead the church lies on the shoulders of Peter. And he takes that responsibility. And he lives that responsibility. But what we also know is that what Jesus gave Peter here is not ultimate authority. He is not laying on Peter to be the head of the church. That is very clear. We'll see this as we continue on. He's setting the foundation for the church to carry Christ's authority. That's what Jesus is setting out here. He is laying on Peter and the apostles the responsibility to carry Christ's authority into the world and then to pass that authority on to the churches that will follow. This 
is where he was going. See, Peter didn't have ultimate responsibility, and we see that. Because throughout the gospel, throughout the, the Acts and, and even into the epistles, we find that Peter was as responsible to the others as the others were to him. In Acts chapter 8, we find that Peter, there is a, a need that goes on, and so the other apostles decide we're going to send Peter. So he is accountable to the other apostles. They gather together, they send Peter. In Acts chapter 11, after Peter has been to Joppa and the Spirit has come on to, to, uh, to those of the, the Gentiles, he comes back to the church and the church at Jerusalem expects him to answer what has happened. Why did you go there and why did this happen? And Peter, because he is accountable to that church, answers them. Even in Galatians, Paul confronts and rebukes Peter, saying, Peter, you were wrong. And Peter was wrong and admitted it. So what Christ is giving here is not an ultimate authority to a man. What he is giving is authority to the man who will pass it on. The authority to carry his authority. This will become much clearer as we pursue through what Jesus has to say. Now, what we come to here, when we come to this passage and Jesus says, I will build my church, this is the first time Jesus uses this word. It's the first time Jesus has come to speak of this idea. So what does it mean? When Jesus comes here and he says, I will build my church, what does he mean by that? The apostles knew because it was a common word. The Greek word that is there used, which we have church. Now, I'll be honest with you, the English word church is not the greatest English interpretation. It really comes to us from a Latin tradition passed down and means building. So the, the English word is not the greatest translation, but it's what we have, so we use it. The Greek word is ekklesia. Ekklesia was a common word during the time. What it meant was called out, assembly, to gather together. So that's what when you read uh, in the, the New Testament on the most, almost all occasions where it uses that word church, it is that word ekklesia which means to call out, to gather together. It was used very often in the sense of calling out a town meeting. So they would call out the people of the town to gather in and to speak, to discuss town business, to do what needed to be done. So it was a public gathering of people. It was a gathering of people together for a purpose. So when Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, the disciples didn't have to go, what do you mean by this ecclesia? They knew what it meant. They had seen it, they lived it, they'd been a part of what this was. They understood Jesus was establishing an institution. He was establishing a meeting, a gathering of his people. We could use the same term, and, and we do use uh, similar sorts of ideas. We could speak of a, a school ecclesia. We're going to the school assembly. We might say, uh, I heard on the news that the Liberal Party or the Labour Party had their party ecclesia. It is, they gathered together and they had their political party meeting. So they gathered together and they had their meeting. Or that the footy club members had their annual ecclesia. So they got together and the members of that, that footy club had a meeting to decide what they would do as a footy club. It had with it a very usual, very normal understanding. It's a visible gathering of people organized to carry out a purpose. 
Disciples understood that. And in Scripture, in all but, I think, three or four places, the Bible uses this word to carry out and to hold the meaning of a visible, organized gathering of people. On those other three occasions, it's used as an institutional word. So, for instance, if I say to you, I believe in the family. You don't understand me to mean I believe in your family and that family and every family, and I'm, I'm thinking of every individual family. I'm thinking of an institution of a family. So I believe in the family. And so that's how it's used in Scripture. But what Jesus tells us here is not that he's just building a church. He tells us here that he is building his church. He is building his church. An institution which is subject to him as saviour and lord. The church then is not just a random gathering of two or three who want to talk about Jesus. It is his assembly of his people called for his purpose to carry out his work in the way of his choosing. A church is literally an assembly of God's people. We are God's special people. Jesus is calling out his people together. And because it is his assembly, he is the head. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You see, at every God-ordained assembly of his people, God is present. Jesus is present as head. He is there as its leader. Thus, the reason we need to understand that he is Lord. In this church, Jesus is head. And if that is true, if Jesus is head of his church, then it is not our job to define our purpose. It is not our job to refine our structure, nor is it our job to identify our target group. These are all outside of our responsibilities. They are not what our job is to do. Our duty is to follow the instructions of the head. To be faithfully pursuing obedience to him. That is the duty of every church of God. So what he tells us about this ecclesia that is his ecclesia, his church, is that he will build it. I will Build. You see, we look at this and we, we see, you know, he talks about Peter and he talks about the rock and he talks about the foundation. But regardless of whether you believe Jesus means Peter or himself as the rock, he is very clear about how the church will be built. It's not Peter. It's him. I will build my church. Peter wasn't going to build the church. The apostles weren't going to build the church. Successful strategies aren't going to build the church. Jesus will. That is his job, to build his church. Our strategies may build congregations. They may fill rooms. They may bring assemblies. 
but our strategies will not build a church. Only Jesus can build a church, a true God-ordained church. And Christ promises that he will build his church. How he does that, we'll see later, and we'll follow that more. Building a church starts by opening the eyes to the confession that Jesus is Lord and Savior. How did Peter know to say the answer he had for that question to Jesus, who do you say I am? And he answers, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How did he know that? God showed him. God opened his eyes. And that's where it starts. And as that is the start, that God opens the eyes of people to see, so that is how it continues, that God does the work in his people to build his church. I've said before, and we'll see in more detail later, that the church is a supernatural organism. Gloriously magnificent supernatural organism. What does Jesus say about this church that he will build? He tells us that he will protect it. He will protect his church. The gates of death will not prevail. That statement assumes that it will be under attack. And it is. Church of Jesus Christ is under attack. It always has. It has been under attack from the very beginning, from the very start. We'll see next week as we continue to look through this passage, we'll see that part of the the main reason that the church is under attack is because the church carries the authority of Jesus Christ in this world. That is a very important detail. We've seen from the very beginning, though. How did we first meet the Apostle Paul? As Saul, who was trying to destroy the church in Israel. Very quickly, throughout the regions as the church moved, very quickly, people began to infiltrate the church with false teachings. That's why we have the book of Galatians. That's why we have the letter of Colossians. They were all written to deal with false teaching that was being brought into churches. Churches had neglected their duties and forgotten who they were. Corinth. Churches had been seduced by the world and by doctrine. And so we have seven letters to the churches in Asia in Revelation to remind them of who they are, what they were to do. Sadly, those churches are gone now. The assimilation of church and paganism in Rome was an attack on Christ's institution of the church. The persecution of the church from those very early days right through the Dark Ages was a constant attack on the church of Jesus Christ to destroy it. More recently, the attacks of modernism on the Word of God, that the Bible is not God's Word, attacks the foundation of a church. The huge influence of the prosperity gospel in our world right now is an attack on the church. Communism and the like tried to destroy the church. You don't attack something so persistently and so ferociously for centuries if it's powerless. 
You attack something like this so ferociously and so persistently for centuries because you know it is powerful and you want to render it powerless. The gates of hell are trying to destroy what Christ is building. The forces of wickedness want to render this church and every church of God powerless. But Christ says, though the gates of hell shall prevail, it will stand. It will stand. At times, throughout history, it seems as though the gates of hell did in fact prevail. That the church was dying. Churches fall even now and fail in doctrinal and moral error. I'm certain that many of us know churches, are familiar with churches that we have seen and been a part of that once were thriving that now no longer exist. We've all seen this. Persecution throughout the centuries seemed to wipe out great swaths of churches throughout countries. But after centuries of attacks, God's church still stands. Generation after generation has passed on faithfulness to God. Passed on faithfulness to his word and carried his authority into their generation. That is the duty of every church. That is the duty of this church. At times through history, our brothers and sisters met in tunnels, in caves, and in fields. Because they could not meet in public, they would be destroyed. To the world, they didn't exist, but they kept the faith and God sustained. They fled from one country to another for the sake of their lives. And as they fled from one country to another, they took with them the glorious message of the gospel and established churches behind them. This church, this one here, stands not on its own two feet, but by the will of God and in the company of churches throughout history whom Christ has used to declare his glory. This is one of the wonderful things why I like to sing the old hymns and read the old books because it is a reminder to me that we are not isolated, but we are part of a great and glorious work of God through the centuries. God has protected his church. Satan will attack with all he has, but Christ will be known through his churches. This is the beauty of this place. The glory of this place. This is not a gathering. This is a work of God. Jesus' next statement, which we're not going to get into this morning, but his next statement explains why the church needs his protection. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's what we'll talk about next week. What are these keys? Why is he giving them to us? But it's that statement which tells us why we need his protection. See, we carry his authority into the world. A church is a place with beautiful, eternal significance. 
I'm the person who started this church. But this is not my church. This is Christ's church. This church belongs to him. He is its head. And he is calling out a people from this city to gather together in his name for his purpose. He is building it. I've said this before and I will say it until the day I die. You are not here by mistake. Christ builds his church. As long as we remain faithful, faithful to him and to his word, he will continue to build it. And he will build it as he sees fit and he will protect it. Firstly, we must be an assembly that clearly marks the truth of Jesus Christ by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The day we slightly shift from that truth is the day our death begins. He is the Christ, God's anointed deliverer from sin. He is the Son of the living God. He is God, ruler, creator. So who do you believe Jesus is? Are you not sure? Then let's talk. Talk with me. And we'll talk about who Jesus is. Do you believe he is who he says he is? Well, then have you submitted to his authority? Because it is impossible to call him God and Savior and not call him Lord. Have we submitted to his instructions? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, the beauty of the church is deep, profound, important, but it is also encouraging, strengthening, awe-inspiring. What you do in the gathering together of your people is quite simply amazing. But the power of all Almighty God is at work to defend against the attacks of Satan. That you build, sustain, guide, and correct. The implications of this push me to my knees say that you are great and glorious head. Lord, let us be a church that exists long into the future because we fulfill your will. We carry your authority with dignity and honor and we pass it on to the next generation. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand with me as we sing a song of response this morning?